my biggest offers were to lose fights. Um, a guy flew out from from uh, Europe and offered me three hundred, offered me eighty thousand to defend the title on the level. And then he said, well, "Our boy can't beat you." <laughs> anyway, he offered me three hundred US, paid, and it was a lot of money back then. It was about two and a half million today, probably probably more. Um, he offered. Paid into a Swiss bank account, the combination given to my dad before the fight, said, I've done my homework. I know you've never been knocked off your feet. You don't have to go down. I could retire in the corner, so I had a busted eardrum. He'd get a doctor in there because I'd never been knocked off my feet and, you know, just basically hand the title over and I just, I couldn't possibly do it. No one's ever lucky. I think the only lucky you get in life is where you're born and then you make the rest. Stick around, it's going to be a good ride. We've got his ring in. What's the go with this, eh? <laughs> uh, <Dan's> Where's Dan? <laughs> he's better, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Dan? Because I don't believe in luck. The only luck you get is where you're born and you make the rest, okay? So uh, where, where, what's this guy doing? He has the teeth on it. <laughs> good chompers. <laughs> He looks like he's come straight from Burning Man <laughs> with the top. Yes, <laughs> too. Oh, well, nah, we for, might- the, for the people listening, we should point out, yeah, Hollywood's not here today. He's not here today. He's under. He's going under to have a little operation. Whereabouts? What's? Yeah, I think know? it's near the hind quarter. <laughs> the hind. I think it's on the bot bot. So we might need a donut for next week. We'll bring him episode. a donut. We'll bring him a donut next week. But, but we we'll, might. We might get some sense out of him today. I reckon. Yeah, I reckon we're a show. <laughs> 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 Love it. All right, let's get into it. Welcome back to Australia's number one podcast, everybody. We are the Little Fish, and we speak to the big fish about town each and every week. We talk development, property, mindset, business, life, bringing you guys as much value as possible. So please like, share, subscribe, whether you're listening or viewing, because you can do both. Uh, please, please interact and uh, get the algorithm pumping, Benny. Bloody oath. Let's get into it, guys. Today's guest, Australian boxing legend. Having carried the torch for Australian boxing between through the 70s and 80s, he's held the IBF Super Featherweight World Championship from 85 to 87 after beating Lester Ellis in a 15-round war. Oh, yeah. Touted, dubbed, as the fight of the century. Inducted into Australian Boxing Hall of Fame, and he's never taken an eight count in 60 professional bouts. That's, in, that's, that's insane. Tough as nails. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Chin. That's tough as nails. Oh, that's chin. That's chin. That's chin. chin yeah. Keep Good. your feet. Keep your feet. Keep your feet, son. <laughs> I used to tell me that at footy. <laughs> My dad used to tell me that as well. Keep your feet. Well, this, like, you try and stay up on your feet out there, Dad. Well, this guy keeps his feet, all right? <laughs> uh, and he may have pissed off the King of Ligon Street. I'll add Fans or Gunjatano at oh, some point as well. Shit. So there could be a story there. Today, he's a motivator, commentator, boxing analysis appearing on SEN. Harold Sun, um, yeah, doing great things. Give it up for Barry Michael, everybody. Hi, I'm Baz. How are you, fellas? Hey, buddy. Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you, mate. Thanks for coming in. Alphonse, haven't heard that name in a while since. So headphones just down on the uh, the other side, Baz. Down this side, Baz. And you just you just hold your you just stay there, Dan. And maybe flip him around, Baz, so it's not cutting across you. Probably make it a bit easier. That's all right. Are you happy with that? Yeah, yeah no drama. It's gold. Beautiful, mate. Uh, thanks for coming in. How, how have you been? 
pretty good. Uh, well, when I say pretty good, the last 12 months been pretty average because uh, I lost my father just over a year ago, you know, and COVID I think had a lot to do with it because I couldn't get to see him in the aged care facility, you know, I had to speak to him through a window. Yeah, of course. And then I, my wife kept, kept nagging me about a, uh, a little thing I had on my lower left top part of my hip and I finally went to the <clears throat> to the doctors and they hit the panic button, did a test and it turned out it was a malignant melanoma so I had that removed. That was last year and then uh, prior to Christmas um, after my two AstraZeneca shots I was playing eight ball with a mate of mine and I was struggling to breathe. <coughs> up until then I was still prior to the last lockdown, I was still in the gym regularly still training, still yep. doing a lot of, lot of walking and uh, and you know, I really believe it was the, uh, the the second shot that triggered it. I end up having trouble breathing and chest pain, and it turned out that I had three blocked arteries and uh, oh, had to undergo triple bypass surgery. So I got over that. That was November the thirtieth. I had that done. So I was out six days later and recovered pretty well. And then a couple of weeks ago, I had to go to Sydney to do the fights up there. So what did I do? I bloody caught COVID, didn't I? And I, <laughs> I bought it back and gave it to the wife as well, which you know she wasn't very happy about. And we're both. It knocked us around a bit, to be oh, honest. You've had you know. a shit run. Yeah, but yeah. I'm pretty good now. I'm pretty well. You know, got the all clear, so you don't have to worry about catching anything off me. Ah, good. <laughs> so, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Uh, Baz, I, I remember when we, we met, if you remember, Pete, we yeah, met your dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dad, yeah. He was ama- an amazing man. Uh, mm. You know, he did 29 trips over Germany in the Lancaster Bombers. He had a remarkable story. And, uh, yeah, he was – And he was your coach as well? He was he was my – Or advisor? He was like my rocker Gibraltar right the way through, advisor, yep. coach. He basically showed me how to hold my hands up. He had about 20 fights in the amateurs himself, so he had a boxing – bit of a boxing background. But he was always – um, what's the word? He was always good enough to to humble enough to let every other people train me and t- teach me. But he was always there in my corner like the rock of Gibraltar. He was my cut man, which I needed a good cut man. And Dad became what's, what's an amazing. What's a cut man? When you start bleeding, <laughs> yeah, gotcha. I mean, you know, they put the thing on your yeah. eye and <laughs> bit of ass. Yeah, Dad, bit of ass. I never was stopped on cuts, even though I was cut to ribbons in many fights and. Yeah. Uh, End up having I had plastic surgery twice over my eyes. Since then, I've had a couple of other melanomas cut out, and I've had plastic surgery there. But I, I actually during my boxing career would have had three hundred stitches over my eyes and plastic surgery on both, and and I was never stopped. So no, dad, no knockdowns. Dad, and never got never kept got, his no, feet. No, kept his feet. feet. Had the shit beaten out of me a few times. <laughs> I heard you did a pirouette once. No, I did a complete three sixty after. Gene Sick joined Darwin, hit me with a left hook, and I, I did a did a three sixty you know, <laughs> and uh, stopped him in four rounds, and so had signed for one hundred and forty grand. <clears throat> Got on the plane with the promoter who was in Adelaide, and he said, "Oh, you know, he's lost money, but it's all good. He'll settle up with us next week in the lawyer's office." Never saw the prick again. <laughs> Bankrupted himself and sent me a check for five k out oh, of one hundred. Oh. So that was painful. That was painful. Yeah. Um, Barry, so the Barry Michael story's out there, and we want to obviously touch on it, but we want to get to the lessons and the advice that that, that, that you've learned in your long and decorated career. You're in the commission flats, and can you start us where the boxing where the boxing started, where the passion started? Um, you know, you fought with your you know your brother. You yeah. started with your brother. 
How did, where did it all start? Well, but basically, you know, mum and dad migrated from the UK when I was two. We lived in Hamilton for a couple of years, and I got a, a bit of a recollection of Hamilton. But I, my first real recollections were at state school in Williamstown. We're living in the commission flats, and <coughs> the commission flats, Williamstown now is a very expensive suburb. But I was going to say, then, commission flats with, with views. Yeah, but <laughs> no, we, where Ocean we views. were, flat one number 99, we didn't have the views. The police, the station, police station was just up the road. They were only four stories high. <laughs> And uh, they built those ones that are 12, 14 stories high, right. and they've got some of the best views in Melbourne. We didn't have the views, but they demolished them 30-odd years ago, and they're now like townhouses. You'd be ha- happy to have one because you buy, you happen to buy one, it costs you a million and a half, two million now. <laughs> um, yeah, but at school, I, you know, because Dad taught me to basically to stand up myself, and, you know, there was a lot of migrants in Williamstown then, English, Greeks, Italians, whatever, Croatians, all different types. So, And <clears throat> Dad taught me to stand up myself, so I got in scraps at school. And by the time I got to high school, I think the first three weeks in high school, I punched on three times. <laughs> you know, back then it was all organised. You'd meet after school. It's a designated yeah. place. Yep. They'd form a circle. <laughs> They'd link arms. And you'd punch on. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I, you know, I was sort of unbeaten, even though, again, I got the the crap beaten out of me a couple of times but they usually gave up and uh, so then I don't know when when I was about 14 maybe nearly 15 I'd we'd already had gloves and my dad had taught me basics and we'd been to a couple of gyms and I'd sparred with friends in the in the in the courtyards at uh, the flats but when when I was about 15 my older brother came home and said he'd been to one of the local gyms in Melbourne Road in Williamstown Road and and he'd sparred there and they told him he was – and my brother could have done anything in any sport or anything, but he just didn't. Anyway, so I went down with him the next night and I sparred a guy called Noel Vodakovic, uh, Nabusha, who was a very tough guy. And, uh, you know, I you know, went pretty well with him. Certainly didn't get away with him because he was a bit more experienced than me at that stage. And the trainer, a guy called David, <coughs> who I lost – contact with him many many years ago he uh he said yeah you can fight and I, I think i trained twice a week for three weeks and had my first amateur fight at 15 against a bloke that had, had i think eight or nine fights and i won on points and i thought this is me and by the time i was about 17 i had this dream and goal that i was never going to stop until i heard the man saying 15 three minute rounds for the championship of the world that was my goal 15, yeah. yeah right and how, and how did that you know, were you inspired by someone else or yep. like what lit that fire in your head? Watching Johnny Famishon, but especially Lionel Rose. Watching Lionel Rose be fighting her out of the two of them, you know, great became great mates of mine. And, of course, you know, Lionel's no longer with us and Famo has been – he's in the aged care facility now after that horrendous accident 25 years, 20-odd years ago. But um, they were both my idols. But Lionel was the man that really inspired me. I just – loved everything about him to see where he came from I didn't really realise the Johnny Famishon story how he came from France with his father and all that and you know he, but he was one of my idols as well but Lionel was the man and by the time I was 19 I became one of Lionel's main sparring partners and you know years later I remember one day we were sparring I was about 19 and uh, maybe 20 and they had the TV cameras there and Lionel's like a cobra in front of me waiting to strike and all of a sudden bang, 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 three jabs and then triple left hook, right hand crack, hit me flush on the chin and my mouth guard hit the wall 20 feet away (laughs) and years later we're having a drink and he said to me, didn't take me effing long to realise I couldn't effing hurt you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now Baz, 
when back then when you made that decision that you 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 real or you you thought of that dream about you know fighting for a world championship were you just thinking world championship or were you did you have to consider how you were going to make money and and the business side of it back then <laughs> well you know i was i was at school and i i did uh my I did matriculation, um, you know, UF, what's it called now? Um, VCE. HSC, VCE. Anyway, yeah. I did. I had a heart attack then. I thought he was talking about some kind of math equation. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, fuck. Anyway, I was not. Year yes. 12. Yeah, year no, 12. Yeah. I did my matriculation. I, I wanted to do economics and uh, that was my f- first choice. And I think uh, physical education was one of my choices. And they offered me psychology. At, uh, at RMIT and I thought, oh, sugar, you know, psychology. So I deferred it for a year and uh, I turned professional on TV ringside. I won my first seven fights that year and won the best first year fighter and that was it. I deferred it for another year but I didn't really have any intention from then on and by then I'd, I'd solidified the dream and the goal that that's what I was going to be, was mm. to be a professional fighter and I was going to make, I was going to get to the top. Yeah. Um, Barry, so, so you decided... You know, non-negotiable. You were going to do it, and you were going to, and you were going to get to the top. So belief, <clears throat> belief, and obviously you had a fair bit of talent there as well. But but what about the hard work? What about the miles and the and you know training every day? You know, talk me talk me through how much hard work you had to put in. It's look, you know, professional boxing. It's you know, it's it's not it's not play fighting. It's really serious, brutal stuff, and you really have to put your body through it. <clears throat> but to be honest with you, I. Once I realised what was necessary and what you had to do, I, I became to love the grind. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I used to, you know, used to love the road work and I loved the sparring in particular. I'd spar. So you I'd fell go, in love with the process, Baz? The whole thing, but I used to love going to gyms. I'd go to gyms and spar. I'd go to footy clubs and spar a whole, even first leagues players, spar the whole <laughs> team, half spar the second. <laughs> Um, did that with Melbourne, did a few others. Uh, Mark Jackson actually cut my eye in a gym spar. And I was Big Jacko, old Jacko. I was punching the soul case out of him. And, <laughs> and Garassi made a big deal of it. And so I challenged him at the underground one night, said, let's do it on the level. And he said, no, nah, no. Nah, <laughs> and he was mad too, he Jacko. Twice the size, twice the size. Yeah, he would have been pretty big too, yeah. Big boy, fought Ronnie Andrews twice. I, I used to spar with heavyweights a lot. You know, I used to spar mm. with anyone. And I just loved it and uh, – and, but, you know, the grind and, you know, the hard work, you don't achieve anything in life unless you put in. And you've, you've got to put in boxing, you've got to put in 120% because it's, you Because know, it's brutal, right? It's, it's, unfor- brutal. It's, it's unforgiving. And it's not just physical, it's mental, the mental side of it. And I was talking about this with Timmy Zoo last week who got knocked down in his, his fight against Yeah, shout uh, out, Timmy. Yeah, great, great effort, What Timmy, a legend. You know, great effort, Timmy, to – Get up in the first round to be caught the way he was in round one. In the other caught, side of the world for the first time. Flush on the chin on the big stage worldwide and he gets sat on his backside in the first minute and a half of the first round and it was a really good clean shot to get up and it took him a little while, round or two, to get his equilibrium back but he just took over and his work rate was phenomenal and he beat a top quality opponent which I did think it was going to be his hardest fight which I, it probably was. You know, his odds, it sounds like his odds would have blown out after that. After oh, he yeah, the, odds, the odds uh, changed dramatically. Uh, Paul Kent, because we were doing the hosting out of Melbourne, whereas um, out of Sydney, sorry, what am I talking about? Because I had to fly from just up the road from the Ivanhoe Hotel, my daughter's engagement on the Saturday night. I had to get up at <laughs> 4.30 the next morning to fly to Sydney to host it out of Sydney. But Jeff Fennick and Ben Damon were ringside over there in Minnesota. It was like minus 10 degrees or yeah, down yeah. to minus 20. I don't know if I could have handled that. But, um, yeah, it was it, – 
to to come back the way he did and to dominate a quality opponent was a great experience for him and I think a great learning curve for him, but it just showed what he's made of. He's yeah. really the right – he's made of the real thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that's a little bit like we spoke about before we come on the pod, like boxing and fighting, which Benny's big on this. There's a lot of parallels between life and boxing. Life will knock you down. Yep. you got to get back up. And that's that's why I love it. That's why I love it, Baz. That's why I love boxing because those parallels are just unforgiving, but yep. it's adversity. It is you know, adversity. Like this kid, Tim Zoo's on the other side of the world. He's got one chance to, you know, live his gen. This is this is his big moment. Yep. Gets knocked down in the third. Was it the second round? First. First round. In the first round, a clean shot. Yep. Straight down. <clears throat> gets back up. Believes, digs deep, and and fights, fights through the adversity and gets it done. Like it's just, it's crazy. It was great to see, and it, it look, it, it's an inheritance inheritance from his father, uh, the great Kosher Zoo. And as I said on TV the other day, everything that the zoo camp do, they're meticulous in. They do, they study their opponents, they train to a T, they do everything perfectly you know and do it hard yep. there's no shortcuts and in boxing there is no sh- there are no shortcuts i've seen three boxers die after fights one of them actually won the fight was announced a winner on the stretcher and died in hospital that night oh. johnny owen was another one who i trained with and sparred with a lot in wales he died in the after the uh, knockdown in the 10th round of a world title fight and there was another one i can't think of his name now but he he died uh, on a show show in williamstown he fought in williamstown in uh, in the city and the, the old uh swimming pool where they had the ring in the water and uh, he got he, he he collapsed in about round four or five and died that night in hospital but uh, so I've seen three fighters die you can die in there if you're not mentally and physically prepared you shouldn't be in there and you sh- you know if you want to be a boxer uh, or, or have a goal to do anything you really need to give it everything you've got and, and take the risk right Baz like that's that's what we feel like like when we're you know, talking, you know, trying to inspire the people at, or the listeners at home to step off the line and, and to have a go. But, mo- you know, a, a lot of the things we hear is, you know, they're scared of losing or failing. But would you agree that, that that's part, part of the path, right? Like you lost uh, five amateur fights. Yeah. Had you given up, you wouldn't be the Barry Michael that we know today and have lived this amazing life that you've lived. So it's exactly. about- Exactly. And I mean, I lost, I lost uh, you know, a couple of fights tr- on the on the road. I mean, bef- boxing was relatively dead when I turned professional. Um, TV ringside had died. That had a few serious injuries and that and that was off the- It was, was there for my first year until I got to main events. And then I went from, you know, potentially fighting for good money back then, you know, thousands of dollars for main events, for fighting in small halls for 250 bucks. My first 10 rounder was Andy Broom for 250 bucks at the Marconi Ballroom. I won the Australian title in uh, 1978 against Billy Mulholland, a mate of mine, Lenny Walsh, the late Lenny Walsh, who passed away a couple of months ago. He was... His uh, brother was one of my main sparring partners, Glenn Walsh. He, Lenny flew me up to Coonabarabran, which is right up in the middle of New South Wales, and I fought Billy Mulholland, who was a great boxer, my Billy Mulholland, at 15 three-minute rounds. I got 750 bucks for it, and I won. <laughs> That's the main thing. And I held that, held that title for nine years. I never lost it. It was one of my great achievements. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Can we, can we talk about... The Leicester Alice fight. Oh yeah, you for know, sure, the big yeah, one. Because that's you know, <laughs> let's cut to the chase, and that's that is a big one, and it's and it's been you know touted as one of the biggest fights. You're an underdog. 
yep. in that fight. You talk about the old, the old dog. Yeah, the, <laughs> the old dog, thirty year old. Leicester was twenty years, yep. old, uh, years of age, and even you know the money was coming for him. They were backing him. For they sure. didn't think he could get to the weight. Can you can you talk, talk some? And, about and that? when you say they were backing him, I think there's some stories around who <laughs> oh, they yeah. are, who they, they who they. I'm just <laughs> saying they. All right, I'm no, I'm, I'm in. no comment. Yeah, <laughs> um, the story with Leicester. I mean, as I said, I used to go around a lot of gyms and spa whoever was available and um, at, you know when Lester was 12 I went to the and I was 22 I went to the Glen Gala boxing gym and I sparred about eight young young lads and you know used to show them things and, and nurture them and if, and if they were good enough to have a crack at me well you know I'm you know, hit him a bit harder sort of thing and just keep him in line. But Lester, I got out the ring after sparring all these young lads and I said, what's this kid's name? And they said, Lester Ellis. He was 12. I said, this kid's a world champion. And then I became, you know, good friends with him and Graham Brooks, who I also had to fight. Graham Brooks, uh, Lionel's first cousin, who went to, I think, 19 and zero before he fought me. Um, and Lester, Oh, you took his zero? Yeah, I took his zero and, and Lester's <laughs> as well. But... You know, with Lester, I I was rapt to see him win a world title. I hadn't fought at that weight in a decade, and and um, you know, I said to my dad one day, I said, "Dad, um, I'm going to challenge Lester," and he said, "What a, a non-title fight?" And I said, "No, I'm going to challenge him for the title." And he said, "Son, you can't make the weight." And I said, "Dad." I'll do it. I'll do it if I have to do it. And I went. I did it all correctly. I went to a dietitian. I had my fat content weight underwater, and I found that I should have probably been fighting at that weight or even lighter the whole way through. And a month before the fight, um, one of Lester's crew, the, the late Alphonse Gangitano, rang me up and said, "Do you need more tickets?" And I said, "Yes, I do." I said, "But stop backing Lester." He said, "No, no." He said, "Love yous both like brothers." Sure. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll said, get to that. <laughs> he said, uh, "I'm not, I'm not betting on this fight." And I said, "Look, I know you are." Oh, I said, "He can't beat me," and it's true. One month before we fought, I'd actually done a did a trial weigh-in where I made fifty-eight point nine five, which is nine stone four, one hundred and thirty pound, um, which I hadn't done in a decade, and I'd fought as high as about one hundred and forty-three or ten stone three, and uh, so you know, a stone difference is, is a fair bit for someone that's fit and you know in good condition, and uh, I realised that at, at that weight I could still have the strength and and maintain. They'd never thought I'd be able to fight the fifteen-round distance, but it was was the best thing I ever did and they fell into it I didn't think they would and anyway I as it turns out you know I, you know won a 15 round war with Leicester but uh, it didn't start off well I'll tell you because before the fight there was you know a lot of bad blood was built between the two of us even though we're great mates today and we were great mates as you know when he was coming up and I was wrapped to see him win the world title but we came to center ring and he, he just started saying because I taught him to talk to opponents too while you're fighting because I oh, still yeah. always talk to my opponents, especially if you hit them a good one, you go, and they go, oh, you go, that hurt you, didn't it, mate? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit statistic, I know. But, uh, anyway, we came to centre ring and, and I just said to Lester, thanks for the title, Lester, and he just started saying, you're effed, you're effed. You can read it as clear as a bell. He said, you're going down, I'm going yeah. to knock you out. And I called him, I said, listen, you young um, I think a lady's sexual organ or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kick your effing backside tonight, and and the, yeah, it was really bad blood. But when we came, when the bell rang, we came came out. The very first punch Lester hit me with, which was one of his greatest punches, was the left rip, and it hit my right elbow, and it skidded under and hit me in the lower side of my 
abdomen and well below my ribs, and I, I felt something rip the very first, and it was like a like a knife stuck in me. Just the very first shot he hit me with. So that pain. adversity. Yeah, then the pain was gone though, and I got on with the job, and I forgot about it. But after the fight, I was passing blood, and it was the first time I ever did. But Lester, he passed blood for about a month after the fight. He was he was you know pretty beaten up. We were both beaten up. He broke my nose in round twelve, uh, and the Joe Bugner was commentating with. Um, who was he doing it with? Uh, Tim um, Tim Lane, that's right. And Joe Bugner in round 12, all of a sudden Lester smashes me with a big right hand and it, by then you're beyond pain and you're beyond exhaustion and I'm not feeling the punches, that's for sure. And all of a sudden I just realised that blood's streaming down my nose and running off my cheek, chin and I figured my nose is busted. And Joe Bugner picked it up during the commentary. He said, Barry Michaels has just copped a massive right hand. It looks like his nose is busted. The, the blood's pouring out of his nose. And, you know, anyway, the bell rings and I go back to the corner. I sit, sit down and Dad's in the gets in the ring and wrote the great late Ray Styles, who got me in the best condition of my life. He goes, great round, great round, three rounds, your champion of the world. I said, he's broken me effing nose. He goes, forget it, forget it. And I'm looking for some sympathy. Three rounds, you're champion in the world. I said, but he's broken me. That never happened in 56 fights, you know. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. I forgot about it and it was no big issue after that, you know. Uh, and would it be fair to say uh, Alphonse backed the wrong horse? <laughs> oh, for sure. They were paying off for months and months. Huh. And did you Did you have your followers that, that got involved? I had, uh, yeah, there was the late Jackie Tucker who passed away only a few months ago too. Jackie made a fortune on me. He, yeah. <laughs> he used to come and watch all the sparring sessions and he, he wouldn't say much, but he'd he'd always back me. He won a lot when I fought Frank Ropas on Ash Wednesday. He won a fortune when I beat Leicester. Yeah, he did. He backed me against Al Carter, which no one gave me a chance against Al Carter, who was 23 knockouts in 24 fights. Um, yeah, so, you know, there was guys that, you know, in my circle that, always had a quit on me and one of them the biggest punter of the lot was Jack Tucker the great late Jackie Tucker the chicken man who uh, a beautiful bloke and yeah he, he won a lot of money on me yeah bloody good bloody good so so you, you're world champion you're world champion and I think you went the 15 rounds I think yeah, went 15. Watching, watching it it looks like looks like you nailed him late but yeah, but went, it went the time did it yeah it went 15 threes it was um, round three he, he, he caught me with an uppercut what happened was round three, all of a sudden, Gus Mercurio, who was the referee, stepped between us and um, warned me for punching low. And uh, and I sort of was in shock and he said, box on. And Lester sidestepped me, picked me up with an uppercut and, and you know, crashed me with his right hand. And I was in Disneyland, seriously. <laughs> and he knew he was a – Lester was one that had more killer instinct than almost anyone I ever fought – and he just bombarded me and he and I you know experience got me through it and I went to a show and I, I caught most of them on the gloves and shoulders and top of the head and he just bombarded me and I hit him a couple of body shots while he was you know bombarded me and finally when he slowed up I got up close to him and I said to him that's the best you can do you want to forget it you know <laughs> <laughs> that, that was round three and from then on I started taking over and as the fight progressed I, I sort of got on top and uh you know, down the stretch, you know, there was no doubt. And, you know, if you watch the documentary, A Melbourne Story, a lot of people, because they show the highlights of Leicester with his brilliant combinations and that, 
but it's only minutes of, of the actual fight. I say to people, watch the whole 15, three-minute round because yeah. there might have been a few rounds I did lose, but the majority of my won convincingly. And I think it was five, six, and seven points on the judges' scorecard. Was that three judges then or yeah, was that – So judges, that wasn't yeah. the yeah, – yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the only way to do it. You need three at least. And even, <laughs> then, even then they quite often get it wrong. Yeah. You know, I've seen some horrendous decisions um, over, over the period of my do, life. Do you know? think – what about um, – what do they call it? So – Anyone, I think I've heard stories before of people trying to get to you before the fight to throw the fight and stuff. Do you that obviously <laughs> happens? <laughs> yeah, it happened to me. My biggest offers were to lose fights. Um, I can probably talk about the first one because two of them I can probably talk about. One was Lucky Gadalari, um, he was making a comeback, and uh, I was offered 10 times what I was fighting for to lose that fight, and I wasn't interested, and I stopped him in three rounds. Um, and there was a big one. There was a big one as well, wasn't there? Yeah, was that I was late, late in the career yeah. as, I, as world champion. Um, a guy flew out from from uh, Europe and offered me three. He offered me eighty thousand to defend the title on the level. And then he said, well, "Our boy can't beat you, but he also can't make the weight." <coughs> Which you know, the limit was fifty eight point nine five. The lowest he could make was sixty three and a half. <laughs> Yet he was European lightweight champion at 61.25. <laughs> anyway, he offered me 300 US, paid, and it was a lot of money back then. It was about two and a half million today, probably, probably more. Um, he offered, paid into a Swiss bank account, the combination given to my dad before the fight, said, I've done my homework. I know you've never been knocked off your feet. You don't have to go down. You can, and I had uh, my left eardrum, I think, ruptured nine times and my right one about five, I think, four or five. One stage I had to get an eardrum grafted in the left side because it wouldn't heal anymore. And thus I'm a bit, quite a bit deaf. But, um, yeah, he said to me, you know, I could retire in the corner, so I had a busted eardrum, he'd get a doctor in there because I'd never been knocked off my feet and, you know, just basically hand the title over and I just – I couldn't possibly do it. I just – I can understand why fighters do it, you know, for money. Um, and I'd probably be a lot better off financially today if I had done it back then, but I just couldn't live with myself. So I'd never really considered it. I would argue, Baz, that – yeah, you're lucky that you didn't do it because you've gone on to commentary and you're respected. You know, you're in the Australian Boxing Hall of Fame, and all of those things are worth way more than yeah. that that short term <clears throat> money back then. And True. How, how close were you, Baz? Because I, I, I'd like it would have been hard. Well, I'd like to think I wouldn't take it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but you know <laughs> but, what I mean? Like, you, you know. it was a lot of money, and you know, like I. I I discussed it with my dad. I said, Dad, I couldn't do it. He said, son, you know, don't do it. You know, he said, money's not everything and, your, you know, your pride and you yeah. know, who you are is more important. And, you know, thus I hate seeing rig fights and they do still happen. Yeah. There's a yeah. question in Trivial Pursuit, what's the easiest sport in the world to fix? <laughs> and you, you only got to get to one person, even yeah. the corner men yeah. don't even know. You just yeah. need to get yeah. to one guy, yeah. two people. Yeah. And I've seen fights, you know, and I'm not going to mention any, but I've seen- <laughs> Do you reckon today still bad? you reckon there's still yeah, a bit still going on? on? Well, of course there is, because wherever there's money- in the Wherever there's high stakes and money. Yeah. yeah. Whenever there's that, you know, especially big money at top level now, uh, you know, because you're talking about a worldwide betting ring. Yeah, so yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a lot to different. Talk, talking about that and going back to the Leicester <clears throat> fight and say Alphonse Gadgetano, the king of bloody Ligon Street- so he lost a lot of money, Baz. There's a famous story. Can you take us to the Lazar nightclub and, and and what happened there? And and you know why why Alphonse wasn't that happy? Yeah, well, Alphonse and I um, 
we had a reasonable sort of relationship. I used to get along with him okay. I uh, didn't really have issues with him. Um, about People don't know, but about 10 years before they jumped me in Lazar's, there was a, a punch on outside Mickey's disco and it ended up my team against his team and uh, weapons were fired as well. And But it was all hands were shaken and there was I actually punched on with one of his friends who king hit me and I beat the crap out of him, but that's another story. But um, there was no bad blood between Alphonse and I. And then he took over the career with with um, the Cedar bus lines and you know he was he wasn't one of their managers he was like their security guy let's say you know their <laughs> their go-to bloke to you know when they needed if someone stood over or whatever but um, as I said when he rang me a month before the fight and you know said Do you want more tickets and I said yeah and he told me he wasn't betting on it well I knew that was rubbish and it wasn't until two years after it was just before I lost the world title I'd, I'd was, I'd been living in England. I defended the world title in Manchester for my third defence. Came back to Melbourne. Uh, was still trying to get a fight with Lester Ellis. Uh, my manager Frank Warren wasn't doing the right thing by me, and I let him know that. To be honest, especially at a convention a couple of years ago in Miami, that's another story. Anyway, I came back to Melbourne and I went to see the Jeff Fennick Tony Miller fight, and I got invited to about three or four different functions, and I made the mistake of going to Lazar's. I had my first wife with me, Sandy, and a young friend of mine, Simon, who was 21 at the time. And all of a sudden, and Alphonse was there, and we just sort of waved to each other, and I hadn't spoken to him in years, and he was on a table with a, another group of guys. <clears throat> I was, think I was wearing a suit or a jacket, and all of a sudden a bottle of champagne came over, and this, this the waiter said, this is from Mr. Gangitano, and he liked to talk. And uh, cut a long story short, <clears throat> we went and talked, he got a bit heated because I said I'm always I was always ready for a rematch. You know there was all I got I got I had so many people turn on me when I'd go out say give Lester a rematch. I always was willing to give Lester a rematch. Mm. Lester took him 35 years to say he didn't want a rematch and he never would have beat. But me. he kept I, that close to his chest he back kept then. Kept it close to his yeah, chest. Right. And, and you know so anyway then I'm telling Alphonse that you know I'll fight him any time. Let's get together with the other guys my my team which was some colourful waterfront identities amongst my team mm. and we'll sort this fight out. And uh, all of a sudden, my first wife started screaming and I've turned around and my mate Simon, he's unconscious being carried out by the bouncers. One of Alphonse's friends is just king at him coming off the dance floor. And I've turned around the, for the first time in an hour or so and I was just surrounded, you know, by a, quite a few guys with sort of death in their eyes. And the first thing I thought was I'm probably dead because I know they carried pistols and whatever. And I turned to Alphonse and I said, you effing so-and-so, you've set me up. And he just jumped me um, and I went, you know, back on a couch or whatever it was. And I never got off it, chair or couch, I can't recall, but um, they just beat the crap out of me. And um, oh. Chopper Reed reckons he was there. There, I didn't recall seeing him. It was all a bit of a blur. If mm. I was concussed that night, I was probably concussed ever in my career. Um, my nose was smashed right under my left eye. It was smashed right across my face. He reckons they smashed me with one of those glass ashtrays. Who chopper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Alphonse actually latched onto my right cheek. He tried to bite my cheek off. And, uh, yeah, I had whole ring holes all over my head. And I remember at one stage security because they were still whacking me. <clears throat> and my wife, she'd been carried out by the security. She was outside and I was left to them. And um, look, there was talk about a gun that was 
fell out of someone's hand or was kicked under the couch. The security, I remember one of them sitting on me and I remember him saying, you know, he's had enough, he's had enough, you'll kill him. I was sort of vaguely recall that. And then I remember him just dragging me through the crowd and blood spraying everywhere from my nose and, and mouth and top of my head and that. And uh, we got to the, the front door and they just pushed me outside and um, my first wife, Sandy, was out there with Simon, who's, you know, sort of coming too. And I remember exactly what I said. I said, take me to hospital. I need to go to hospital. <laughs> but I've still got the world title. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have it for long after that. Four months later, I lost it. Well, would it be fair to say, given that you're alive now, you you, 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 you didn't cooperate with the authorities? Yeah, when they came didn't cooperate for sure, yeah. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, the police turned up at the gym, at Jack Rennie's gym, a week or so later, and they knew the full story. And I just looked, said, look, you know, I've had a, a dispute with an associate that I know, been blown out of all proportion, and I signed that. That's what that I was it. Because there would have been repercussions for my family or friends if I and I'm, I've, you know, the code of the code of silence. You don't give people up, you know, and otherwise you suffer the repercussions, you know. So it was part of my, um, you know, especially in that that. That time, it's been documented. Yeah, that era, it's been documented. You know, through all the underbelly series mm. and stuff. So, when you were living through that time, and you were saying you had some uh, some waterside people on your side, what are they, painters and dockers? Painters, and dockers. painters, painters and dockers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, in that time, when you were living, did you understand or realise how deep and dangerous? the Melbourne underground and those guys like uh, Alphonse were or now in hindsight it all makes sense does that um, no, sounds, to, sounds like you were pretty fearless to be, <laughs> yeah. to be honest could, with throw, you, could throw hands so <laughs> well, you, you, you know they, they these guys like the waterfront boys they took Frank Robus to you know number seven in the world or so unbeaten in eight years got him sponsors did a great job and when we fought I actually approached them to look after me, you know, I was going to be stripped, so I went to the IBF convention and got up and gave my story. And they said to me, "You got to fight Rocky Lockridge." And to be honest with you, I didn't realise um, how good Lockridge was. I didn't really do my homework. And but I, I think, to be honest with you, after the beating Lazars, that was the end of me. Um, yeah. Motivation-wise, I just lost the desire. I wasn't the same. I wasn't as dedicated. I drank more, ate more. You know, just didn't do it properly and struggled to make the weight big time. Take nothing from Lockridge because he was a great fighter. But I just think at my very best I could have beaten him. And my nose broke in the first minute of the first round against Lockridge, which was after the having been reconstructed yeah. and reconstructed. Mm. Well, yeah, right. well, Baz, I've got one for you. When you finished boxing, you were one of the very few boxers that didn't, you know, retire and then come back. A lot of boxers come back because of financial reasons. Um how, 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 did, how did you feel? How were you left financially? Were you in a good position? And mentally, did you know what you wanted to do? Or did, did it take some time to figure out? And um, um, To be honest with you, I wasn't in that strong a financial position. Position, You know, I was better off than the average bloke, but certainly not wealthy. Um, we bought a house on Currumbin Creek up on the Gold Coast, my first wife and I. And uh, for about, I don't know, three or four months, I... I went to the gym every day. I ran every day. I was like, I was still training for fights. I was still sparring. I'm thinking, you know, why aren't I fighting? And I've retired. And, you know, this desire had sort of gone, but it was still lingering there. Anyway, I got into um, selling advertising with some mates of mine for a while. And, and then I got into insurance and finance. And I ended up, ended up with a, 
a good business before the recession we had to have and the divorce we had to have at the same time, <laughs> which sort of, and then I had my first son. But um, at one stage I had about 4,000 square foot of office space in, uh, in, uh, in where were we? I in one of the good suburbs on the Gold Coast and employed about 13 or 14 people was doing uh, a lot for MLC, Zurich Insurance, you know, a lot of the big companies. And and I wish now I didn't drop it, but basically the, the divorce we had to have and the recession we had to have sort of finished things. And I, so I came back to Melbourne with custody of my first son, uh, Zach, um, who's about 33 now, and virtually next to, to nothing and had to start again. And I, to be honest with you, I would have always come back and fought Leicester again, but there was never a legitimate offer. Uh, I would have fought Jeff Fennick, which challenged Jeff for many years, and you know we're on good terms now, and that was never going to happen. Um, and if someone, I never had—I'll be honest with you—I never had one legitimate offer. I did have a few offers, but they weren't legitimate. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And I was yeah. wasn't even going to consider them. So. Consequently, since then, I've done many things. I've been involved in, in in real estate sales. I've been, you know, promoted fights. I've done a lot of commentary, and you know, I've always got something. Bit of property development. Bit of pro- I've, got, I've got a bit of property development, and you guys have helped me there. I've <laughs> I've actually worked on a couple of big ones at the moment. I'll tell you about after. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I've always had something on the go. Um, but I always would have came back and fought again if the offer was right. But I, I did get a few offers, but they were never legitimate. Would you say boxing and the things that, you know, boxing sounds like it left you with not a hell of a lot at the end, but would you say the mentality that it left you with helped you through the later parts of life of the, that, the stuff we we're talking about earlier, getting knocked down, being resilient, you know, well, not being, you know, <laughs> taking risks and all those things, Baz, because it sounds like, yeah, you went into business. Not everyone does that. You know, you could have just gone and got a job, but you didn't. So would you say there was some, um, yeah, there's some good lessons that maybe you didn't realise at the time that was part of your makeup that you got uh, to take away from boxing? Definitely took away from boxing, but also I think my father, to see what my father did, you know, because <laughs> my father was a very resilient man and he just, he, he ended up, putting himself back to university when we were in, in uh, the commission flats and he got a degree and he ended up with a very good job in the public service. Just my dad always inspired me and uh, talked to me about, you know, basically, you know, achieving goals and, you know, I read a lot of things about it as well. But um, I, and another business I did get involved in, a credit to him, I out of the blue when I came back to Melbourne after, you know, the recession and the divorce and all that sort of stuff, um, I was at home one day and I got a phone call from a Greek guy um, and he said to me, oh, you know, your father's a good friend of mine. I'd like to, uh, Paul's Avdorides, I'd like to speak to you about something. And I said, what is it? He said, it's an outdoor all-weather pool table, billiard table. So I went and met him and his son, Charlie, who's a very good businessman, very good. We end up, cut a long story short, we all end up in partnership together and we built over about 15 years, we built a very strong amusement machine business with jukeboxes, pinballs, pool tables, and they used to make them at the factory. And I sold out that during the the global financial crisis, uh, which is something I regret, I still regret to this day selling it out, but by then the market had become that much harder. But yeah, I've been in various businesses. um, And but yeah, I think boxing definitely you know, help me in, in so many ways. I mean, boxing can be dangerous, as I said, and you can see fight. I've seen fighters that are punch drunk, even though it's a rarity these days because the medical rules are a lot stricter than they used to be, but it still can happen. One fight can 
kill you or damage you permanently, as, as in so many sports as well. But uh, I think for the majority of boxers these days, the way the boxing have run, it's just going to help them in life in general. And I yeah. think it helped me a great deal. Yeah, because you got like boxing, like you're into it, Benny, you know, much more into it than me. But me sitting back, you know, we talk to a lot of people people Barry who sit in that chair and boxing's this thing where it's like all right let's train and then you both get on this platform so you've got to train you've got to outwork your competitor then you've got to actually have the balls to get on the platform the and yeah, expose yeah. yourself in front of the world and go all right well I'm going to either find out one way or the other whether yep. I'm going to win or going to lose yep. and some people don't and then you get up there and then you've got this platform where well we're going to see who's done the work because right. you know or work or talented because because it's going to come to the floor and there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And you're going to take – and if you're on the losing end, you take the lessons, you yeah. go back to the gym and you and you, and you better yourself. It's Yeah, it's pretty, then, pretty wild, then, those parallels. And, and then you book in your next your next fight <laughs> where it's like, all right, world, I'm back to see how I'm going to go again. So comparing it to like other people maybe in business or uh, careers and things like that, there's not too many places where it's like, there's there's your ring. Go figure out if you've done the work or not. Hundred percent. And to me, it's like the, it puts it into perspective, right? So those ones that are sitting, you know, whether it be at a cubicle or behind the hoarding, and you know, not sure whether to take the step or the risk, it puts it into perspective. And you go, look at this, like George Cambosis or, or whoever whoever these guys are that are just really putting them. If they're, you know, they're risking their lives. Mm. They're doing it on a stage in front of friends and families, nowhere they can hide. They're, they're taking the risk. Their anxiety, reputation. Their the reputation, whole the whole lot. And and I look at it and I go, well, fuck, if they can do that, surely I can start a property development business and if yeah. it doesn't work out, I'll be okay. You know yeah, what I mean? 100%. Or I can hire that guy I can hire, or I can take yeah. on that job or I can make that phone call make phone to that call, person. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to take risks. Yeah, I, I love those parallels, Baz. Yeah, true. And I, look, you know, you mentioned George Cambosis. What an example. Oh, dude. You know, to, um, and, for, you know, I was lucky enough to promote a couple of- Give him a goosebumps, Baz. I was That's promoting a, a couple day. of his earlier fights and uh, his father was Adam and he wanted uh, my ex-partner, Brian Armatrua, and I to promote him in Melbourne. It didn't happen. And, uh, you know, I'm just so happy to see the way he's gone and he's, his mental attitude is yeah. is what it's all about. When he fought Teofimo Lopez, I um, I really thought he could win the fight. I did my homework and Lopez had beaten the great Vasily Lomachenko who was didn't really do much for the first seven rounds, Was had been, right. been inactive due to COVID for 18 months or so and turned out needed a rotator cuff surgery as well. So he lost to a guy that wasn't 100%, uh, Lomachenko. But he looked good. Teo did look good he though. Did, he yeah. did, he did. But when I went through his record before he fought George, I couldn't see that he, he was this unbeatable fighter that they were talking about and I knew I knew the toughness that George had. The I mentality, knew he, yeah. The mentality, the fact that he can box, he can punch, he moves well, he takes a good shot and I was just so wrapped to see him win it. It was one of the greatest victories for an Australian. I'm going to tell you a story, Baz. I have to tell this story, right? So on the same, I, I followed like he, he was, he came off the Selby fight. Yep. It was a decision. The whole world. No one gave him a chance. And I remember thinking, not even the Australian media, like the, the mainstream media, no one gave him a chance. And he was about to fight. So he was about to attempt to do something that is in 100 years of boxing in Australia has never, ever happened, which yep. was the undisputed uh, championships. So I watched, I remember I watched every interview and I, I bought in, I believed him. And I felt like, like you said, no one else believed him, but he believed. Yeah. And he made me believe. So I remember the, the day the fight was on, 
my kids and I tell them about it and stuff. And I'm always telling my kids one of the things I try and drill in is, you know, anything's possible, take chances, all these things that we talk about. And um, we're watching the fight and the craziest fight you've ever seen, as you, as you know, there's so the knockdown at the start. Oh, that, Georgie! How good was that, though, oh, when he knocks him down? In he, the, you know, yeah. He's a huge underdog, and he knocks he knocks TFMO down in the first round. Wild, wild. I couldn't believe he comes, he comes back to the corner, Lopez, and his father gets in the ring, and his father's not the sharpest no, he's, the shed. Yep. He's going, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's doing know. what you're doing. Yeah. He just got sat and on He did that ass. the whole way through. <laughs> he, did, he did that the whole way through. Beautiful, beautiful. How's this? So I'm, I'm watching the fight losing my mind because it's the craziest fight didn't realize the back door was open i'm yelling at the tv right i'm going effing hit him georgie hit him you know and like i'm shadow boxing and shit and my kids are like what's going on and they're <laughs> they're watching and stuff and then he wins yeah and i'm like like one of the most exciting sporting things that i'd sort of witnessed sort of thing and he gets on the microphone and the way he spoke and he spoke about it does he said it doesn't matter if the whole world tells you you can't do something, yeah. if you believe you can do it, and if you work hard, how good, how good anything's that? possible. And yeah. I'm sitting there going, see, kids, told you anything was possible. <laughs> rah, rah. Anyway, the best part, Paz, I'm like anxiety and I was like overwhelmed and I'll go, right, let's go for a bike ride, kids. So I grab the three kids and we go for a bike ride. And I get back and the wife's standing out the front with the neighbours. She goes, <laughs> she goes uh, did you just see the police? And I said, what do you mean? I thought they were messing with me. So the police, because I'm yelling, going, Reffin, hit him, Georgie! Go on! You <laughs> know what I mean? thought something was happening. Domestic violence. Oh, wow. The police have come to our house. Wow. Someone's reported domestic violence. And then the wife answered the door and had to say, oh, no, he's not here. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, they don't believe her no, because they're thinking, think you've done you know, I'm touching her up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so anyway, and then he's going, no, he was watching the fight. You didn't see the fight. And, of course, yeah. What so, a classic what that is. story. That's <laughs> a good story. But it is. And, and George, to your point, like, is there a better representation as, as, of, of an Australian sportsman? I know we've got a number out there, but George, just the way that he carried himself through all of that. Yep. And even after it, if you remember, Tio got on the microphone, downplayed, thought he'd lost and stuff, and he still stayed humble and still, you know, stayed true to himself. TFMO Lopez is still saying he won the fight. He got beaten fair and square by a better bloke on the night. And, uh, yeah, no, George has carried himself extremely well. He's become a bit of a superstar in the States. He's commentating for Eddie Hearn. He's yeah, commentating right. for, you know, all these different shows in America. And, uh, and and now it looks as though I actually got a message from Eddie Maguire today that uh, Friday he's got a press conference and it's going to be about uh, George Cambosis. Looks like Devin Hayne, Devin, I think. who you got? Oh, George, you get him? You know, I still think George can do it. Yeah, I think he, you know, he, he he puts on a lot of so much pressure and believes in himself so much. And you know, he's proved that he can fight. He can prove that he can box. He's proved that he can take it. And you know, Devin Haney's going to come to Australia. You know, he's out of his comfort zone. And I, let's just hope George can do it again. Come that'll, on, George, that'll be awesome. And I'll shut. I'll make sure I shut the door when I'm watching the that's fight. A, that's time. a good idea. <laughs> get the sound insulation <laughs> up, Benny. <laughs> good idea. Yeah, nice. And I guess the lessons that I've that I've learned during during just this time with you, Barry, is you got to outwork. You got to outwork everyone out there, outwork your opponent, and you got to be driven and inspired. Yep. Um, you know, if you're mixing those things together, you can get somewhere. Absolutely. Certainly set you up for the future in life, I think, as long as you as long as you go about it the right way. And there's there's no doubt about that for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Great guys. Yeah, well you're a legend, Baz. 
Good on you, fellow yeah, legend. legend. Hey, mate, thank really you. appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming in. All the all the best moving forward. Um, Dan, thanks for your input, mate. Yeah, this is your, your best episode, Dan. I think it was probably his best episode, yeah. Absolutely. The Some of the best questions. Well. <laughs> I had something similar happen to me about 20 odd years ago. Wasn't a lot of fun, but. Uh, you haven't got a donut we could borrow for next week. <laughs> so you can no, no. You'll need one. Hopefully, uh, hopefully he's back next week. Um, that's it, it, guys. Thanks again, Barry. Yeah, heaps of value guys. in there and heaps of takeaway lessons. Thanks for listening or viewing, however you're consuming us. Please like, share, subscribe. Subscribe, comment, tell yeah, us how much on. you loved it. Uh, thanks again, guys. See you at the top. Thank you. Good stuff. Thanks very Legend. much. Legend. Thanks, Buzzer. Thank you. Thanks, Barry. Mm-hmm.